Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. Chances are, at some point in your life, you're going to lose your job. If you're lucky, it'll be just a layoff situation and you'll get some kind of severance or package. But it's possible that something happens that gets you fired, sacked, axed, canned, let go, blown out, dismissed with cause, and involuntarily discharged from your duties. You then find yourself unemployed, between jobs, on the dole, on the beach, on the bench, and out of a job. Hey, it, it happens. And whether we like it or not, it's an employer's right to terminate an employee, if they follow the labor rules, of course. And being fired is a universal thing. It happens in all forms of business, including being in a band or being associated with a band. What do you have to do to get fired from your group? And there's got to be two sides to every firing, right? Let's investigate. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hi again, I'm Alan Cross. There's this romantic notion that a band is a group of people who are in it together. They're a gang that operates under the principles of all for one, one for all. Not quite. A band is like any other group endeavor, one that is governed by human foibles, ego, avarice, laziness, misunderstanding, bad chemistry, dishonesty, overindulgence, and plain stupidity. As well as being artistic enterprises, musical groups are business ventures too. This essentially doubles the number of things that can go wrong. And when things do go wrong, sometimes someone gets fired. Now, Dave Grohl, for example, he's got the reputation of being the nicest man in rock, but when it comes to the Foo Fighters, which, make no mistake, is his band, he's shown that he's not afraid to pull the trigger on a member that's not working out. Quick example, guitarist Fran Stahl, who was released, which is a nice word, from the Foo Fighters over creative differences in 1999. But that was a pretty cut and dried affair. Where it gets interesting for us is when firing gets complicated and messy, and those are the messes that we're going to look at today. And where possible, we'll try to look at both sides of the story. That way you can make up your mind about who was right and who was wrong. I'll tell you right now that one of the most trumped up firings in the history of alt-rock came right at the very beginning. Glenn Matlock was one of the founding members of the Sex Pistols. He co-wrote no fewer than 10 of the 12 songs on the Sex Pistols' one and only album, Nevermind the Bollocks. And if you talk to people who were around back then, a lot of them will tell you that Glenn was one of the major creative forces in the group, the guy who was able to shape some melody out of all that anger. Yet he was fired in February 1977. Why? Well, if you believe the press reports, it's because he liked the Beatles too much. 
Specifically, he allegedly expressed too much admiration for Paul McCartney, and the rest of the Pistols would not stand for that. The Beatles were the enemy, so Matlock had to go. Oh, the other story was that the band was tired of Matlock washing his feet all the time. But the Beatles story is the one that took root. This is the story that was fed to the press by manager Malcolm McLaren, and they ate it up. And now, if you look in some history books, this is reported as fact. Glenn Matlock was fired from the Sex Pistols for liking the Beatles. Well, no, not, not true. Matlock wasn't fired. He quit. He didn't like Johnny Rotten, and Rotten didn't like him. Malcolm McLaren set it up so the two were always playing head games with each other, so there was that. And then there were all the outside factors. The Pistols were under constant attack by the press. Gigs were getting cancelled. The group was banned from most venues across the UK. Nobody was getting paid. The manager was a jerk. And although the Pistols had their fans, there were plenty of people who didn't appreciate the band's attitude towards England and the monarchy. Johnny and drummer Paul Cook had already been beaten up. Glenn didn't want to be next. Basically, it was too much too soon for a 21-year-old working-class kid. So he explained the situation to the rest of the group, shook hands with Malcolm McLaren, and left. The next day, Malcolm sent a telegram to the enemy with the he was sacked for liking the Beatles story, and we were off to the races. What's almost never reported is that two weeks later, Glenn got a call from Malcolm McLaren about coming back. Look, he said, it's not working out with this Sid Vicious guy. So what do you say we let bygones be bygones and you rejoin the band? Matlock's response was, nope, it's, it's too late. I want none of you lot anymore. Given how awful things turned out with Sid, this gives us pause. What if Matlock had returned to the Sex Pistols? How would their future and their legend and myth and legacy turned out? What would be different about music today had he come back? Somewhere in an alternate universe lies the answer. The Sex Pistols and Pretty Vacant, written by bass player Glenn Matlock, who confessed to ripping off the ABBA song S.O.S. to write it. Legend is he was sacked from the band. The truth is that he quit. As the Sex Pistols imploded, things were a little bit more stable in The Clash, but not much. The first person to get the axe was manager Bernie Rhodes, who deserves all kinds of credit for mentoring the band through their first critical years. But then after the second album, he was fired. Creative differences, it was said. The truth, though, is that he was a really bad manager. The Clash thought Bernie had negotiated a deal with CBS for five albums, one per year for five years. What actually happened is that Rose signed them up to a total of 13 albums at a really low royalty rate. A big part of the reason Bernie was axed was because under his supervision, the band fell deeply into debt. But then he was rehired in 1981 after the group was unsuccessfully run by Joe Strummer's girlfriend. And this is where things went wrong again. First, it was drummer Topper Heaton who had a monstrous heroin habit. He was let go on May 10th, 1982. Meanwhile, Bernie enjoyed setting up Joe Strummer and Mick Jones against each other. Mick responded by being difficult to work with and showing up late for rehearsals and recording sessions and refusing requests to consider more tours. Bernie started saying to Joe, get rid of this guy, fire him. And eventually, Joe did. 
It was September 1st, 1983, and his firing was announced in what was called a Clash communique. It is felt that Jones has drifted apart from the original idea of the Clash. In the future, Jones' departure will allow Joe and Paul to get on with the job the Clash set out to do from the beginning. That's it. End of message. So what happened? Well, let's ask Joe. Mick Jones, the Clash guitarist, we lost to artistic mania. I don't know. I'd have begged him to play the guitar. It's insane. I can't stand that kind of... I've, I've got too much... You know, the Clash has got a job on in, in, in trying to attempt its ridiculous aims. You know, I'm proud that we've got ridiculous aims because at least we ain't going to underachieve. And we can't... I can't achieve these things if I have to beg the members of my band to play their instruments, you know, Mick Jones was the Clash guitar player, so I'm not going to walk around, I'm not going to walk around begging him to play the guitar. If he doesn't want to play the guitar, he can play a synthesizer. I don't care, let him get on with it, but best not to drag, it's like, it was like dragging a dead dog around on a bit of string, you know. How can you do anything or be anybody or try and live up to these ridiculous ideals when you're dragging a, a dead dog around on your back. It's insane. Okay, but could there be more to the story? It's been suggested that Bernie wanted Mick out because he wanted to set himself up as the musical director of The Clash. He did, after all, have a big role in the next era of The Clash, which resulted in that horrible Cut the Crap album in 1985, after which the band broke up. So, what's the truth? Again, it all depends on who you ask. The Clash, a band that was eventually torn apart by internal politics, but their real demise came after Joe Strummer fired Mick Jones. Fired from the band he founded. How humiliating. One of the most unceremonious dumpings in the history of metal is how Metallica rid themselves of guitarist Dave Mustaine. He'd been in the band for two years, and things were coming to a head. He drank a lot, more than anybody else in the band, and he did a lot of drugs, too. But it all came down to a dog at least at first. The story is that Dave brought his dog to rehearsal one day, and the dog jumped up on a car belonging to then-bassist Ron McGovney and scratched it. Ron kicked the dog. Dave went in after Ron, and when James Hetfield stepped in, Dave went after him too. Big fight. And by the time it was all over, Dave had been fired. But when everyone cooled down the next day, Dave was allowed back into the band. There was another incident where Dave poured beer into Ron's bass, giving him a severe electric shock. So let's call that strike two. Strike three came when the band was in New York recording an album. Dave was out of control. Alcohol, drugs, crazy aggression, and the rest of the band had enough. They packed up all his gear, drove him to the Port Authority bus terminal, gave him a ticket and said, don't ever come back. That was April 11th, 1983. Dave went on to form Megadeth. Metallica? They found this other guitarist named Kirk Hammett, and they've, you know, done okay. Metallica without Dave Mustaine, but with bassist Jason Newstead. He'd leave the band in 2001, but that was of his own volition. 
Up next, the complicated comings and goings within the entity known as the Smashing Pumpkins. This could be complicated. This is a program all about getting gassed, dismissed. And we might as well tackle the situation with the Smashing Pumpkins. This is, and always has been, Billy Corgan's band. He's been the only constant in the group since 1988. Everybody else has either quit or been fired. Guitarist James Eha, bass players Darcy Redsky, Melissa Oftomar, and Nicole Florentino, and drummer Mike Byrne and manager Sharon Osborne, yes, Ozzy's wife, all left of their own volition, sometimes under friendly circumstances, mostly not. And then there was that one big termination. The first was pretty cut and dried. Jimmy Chamberlain was a great drummer, but he had a taste for heroin. And by the time the band was on the road promoting the Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness album in 1996, he was a hardcore junkie. February 29, 1996, Jimmy and touring keyboardist Jonathan Melvoin, a fellow traveler when it came to smack, both OD'd while the band was in Bangkok. May 2nd, 1996, there was an even scarier OD event when both Jimmy and Jonathan were found unconscious outside the Pumpkins Hotel. They were both rushed to the hospital where they were revived with a... They were both rushed to the hospital where they were revived with giant adrenaline needles. It was just like that scene in Pulp Fiction. At that point, Jimmy was put on notice. One more slip-up, and he was out. Meanwhile, Belvoin was actually fired, but then they said, would you mind staying on with the band to finish up the tour? And then finally, July 11th, 1996, just hours before the Pumpkins were supposed to play two sold-out shows at Madison Square Garden, Jimmy and Jonathan left the Regency Hotel for the East Village in search of a score. They found someone to sell them a particularly potent brand of smack called Red Rum and then went back to the hotel. By four the following morning, Melvoin was dead of an overdose. On July 17th, the band released this statement. Today, we are very sorry to tell you that we have decided to sever our relationship with our friend and drummer, Jimmy Chamberlain. This may come as a shock to some, to others not, but to us, it is devastating. For nine years, we have battled with Jimmy's struggles with the insidious disease of drug and alcohol addiction. It nearly destroyed everything we are and stand for. We have decided to carry on without him, and we wish the very best we have to offer. We would like to thank everyone for their well wishes and support in this very tragic week. Jimmy was out of the band for three years, but in 1999, he was invited back, which was something of a surprise. And I guess things were fine because Jimmy stayed with the band until the first breakup in December 2000. The Smashing Pumpkins featuring sacked and eventually rehired drummer Jimmy Chamberlain. If you're in the Red Hot Chili Peppers and your name isn't Flea or Anthony, you are on borrowed time. Drummer Chad Smith accepted. Being a guitarist in the Chili Peppers is the equivalent of being an extra in a red shirt on Star Trek. It's just a matter of time before you're killed off. Just ask Dave Navarro. Dave joined the Chili Peppers in September 1993 as a replacement for Jesse Tobias, who had been with the band for less than a year. This looked like a great move for everyone, at least from the outside. Dave was looking for work following the end of Jane's addiction, and a lot of bands were wooing him. For example, Guns N' Roses had called, asking him if he'd take the place of Izzy Stradlin. But for whatever reason, Dave blew that one off. Instead, he tried to form his own band, something called Deconstruction, but they fell apart after just one album. Then the Chili Peppers called and asked to jam. Although Dave claimed that he wasn't the funky kind of player the band needed, he was convinced to join anyway. 
His first live appearance with the group was in August 1994 during the 25th anniversary Woodstock show, and his only album with the Chili Peppers was One Hot Minute in 1995. Compared to other albums, that one didn't do so well. Even at 8 million copies, the record was considered a disappointment. It's the good old days. There was even a Jane's Addiction reunion tour in 1997 that seemed to go all right. I mean, Flea even joined up to play bass for the band on that tour. But by the time it ended, a new Chili Peppers album needed to be written. And that's when things really got complicated. Both Dave and Anthony Kiedis were heavy heroin users. Their personalities and their drugs did not mix, especially during a critical period when Anthony was trying to clean up while Dave was still using heavily. Dave would come into rehearsal late usually, and usually already high. Meanwhile, Anthony was in agony, trying to break out of his addiction. Anthony got together with Flea. we got to do something about Dave. He's, he's off on his trip, and, and nothing's getting done. We, we, we need to have a talk. So they did. But the discussion turned into an argument. Everybody got into everybody's face, and then Dave fell backwards over an amplifier, landing on his butt, and then stormed out. It was all rather undignified. A few weeks later, Anthony and Flea tried to talk to Dave again, same sort of result. Meanwhile, Flea was suffering health problems and girlfriend issues. In the spring of 1998, he said, look, Anthony, I can't do this anymore. The only way the band can continue is if we get John back. He was talking about John Frusciante, the guy who bailed on them back in 1992 and who was well down the road to killing himself with heroin. But Anthony agreed. That should give you an idea of how bad things were with Dave. But that's the route they went and John was willing to be saved. Flea was willing to carry on, Anthony wanted to be clean, and so Dave was out. Fired. Red Hot Chili Peppers and My Friends, one of three hit singles from One Hot Minute, the only album to feature guitarist Dave Navarro. Let's move on to the employment situation in Oasis. Noel Gallagher got into the band by staging a coup of a group called Rain, which was Liam's group. He joined on the condition that he'd be in charge, and he took charge. The first guy to go was drummer Tony McCarroll. He and Noel never really got along, and were always sniping at each other. Liam wasn't a fan either, so... That didn't help, and there were rumors of a fistfight. When Oasis signed their big record deal, the contract gave ownership of pretty much everything in the band to Noel and Liam. Noel also had a clause written in that gave him the power to fire anyone in the band for any reason with three months' notice. And like I said, the first guy to go was Tony. Sometime around April 30th, 1995, he got a call while he was visiting his mother. It was somebody at the label saying, Sorry, mate, you're out of Oasis. He tried to sue for wrongful dismissal, but he waited too long to bring the case to court. However, he did get an out-of-court settlement for £600,000, but 250000 of that went to legal fees. He made some of it back by publishing a tell-all book about Oasis in 2014. The next guy to go was rhythm guitarist Paul Bonehead Arthurs. The official story is that during the recording of the band's fourth album, he quit to spend more time with his family. And that may be true, but he could also see the writing on the wall. Noel had been squeezing him out, so it looks like he jumped before he was pushed. 
Same thing with bass player Paul Giggsy McGuigan. He left around the same time as Bonehead, except that he resigned by fax and then refused to take any calls from Noel or Liam. That's the story, although it's also been said that this was another get-out-before-you're-fired situation. And then there was drummer Alan White, the guy who replaced Tony McCarroll. After a long series of fights with Noel, a call came from the group's manager four days before Christmas 2007, telling him he was fired. On the positive side, he was paid £350,000 to go away. He took that money and parlayed it into a career as a property developer. Let's go back to Tony McCarroll for this song. It's him on the wobbly drums. Oasis, a band that was never really stable. We are talking about people who managed to get themselves fired from their bands. It's never pleasant when you need to let somebody go, but sometimes you have no choice. And this was the situation that Josh Homme faced with his old buddy Nick Oliveri. They first became bandmates in a group called Cats and Jammer back in 1987. After some detours, they eventually ended up back together in a band called Caius. Then they separated again before reuniting in Queens of the Stone Age in 1998. Nick was a major part of Queens, co-writing most of the band's second and third albums, and things were actually quite great. Well, sort of great, until some point in 2004, and that's when Josh fired him. Nick was, how do we put this, always something of a loose cannon. He liked to party. A lot. In 1999, he was arrested for getting into a fight with a British band called Terrorvision. At the Rock and Rio Festival in 2001, he played the entire set naked, which, believe it or not, was a crime in Brazil, and he got busted for that. By the time Queen's toured Songs for the Deaf through Australia in 2004, Josh had had enough. Oliveri was fired for disrespecting the group's fans, not to mention the crazy partying. Another story is that Nick got aggressive and weird with Josh over Brody Dahl, his then-girlfriend, and now his wife. And later it emerged that Josh suspected Nick of physically abusing his girlfriend. That was totally intolerable, so Nick was out. It took years, but things got patched up between him and Josh. They even worked in the studio together. Nick would love to get back into Queens full-time, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. And it's worth noting that he can still be a loose cannon. On July 12, 2011, he was engaged in a standoff with a SWAT team in L.A. After two and a half hours, he was arrested and charged with felony domestic violence. That August, he got off with a plea bargain, one count of cocaine possession plus community service, an anger management course, and the promise that he stay out of trouble for three years. But Josh is a nice guy. If you look at the Queen's album like Clockwork, you'll see that Nick provided background vocals for one song. And then in April 2014, he joined Queens on stage in Portland for a song. Still, would you want this guy back in your band? Queens of the Stone Age, before Josh Homme was forced to fire bass player Nick Oliveri. Last I heard, he was playing in a variety of bands, but he has managed to stay out of trouble. One more. And this is the very complicated saga of Scott Weiland and the Stone Temple Pilots. Weiland is one of the greatest frontmen I've ever seen perform. A fantastic talent. But he's also a major, major pain in the ass. But because he's so good, the other three guys in Stone Temple Pilots put up with him until 
they couldn't. STP was formed in San Diego, founded by Wyland and bass player Robert DeLeo in 1986. Wyland sang and wrote most of the lyrics. He liked to drink and the odd line of coke, but eh, not too much of an issue. Then, in 1993, Wyland discovered that he really liked heroin. The story is that during a tour with the Butthole Surfers, singer Gibby Haynes gave Scott a taste, and then, uh, well, you know. Whether the story is true or not doesn't matter, because Wyland did get into heroin. Starting in 1995, Wyland was in and out of rehab and in and out of jail, starting with a bust involving an attempt to buy some crack. In 1998, he was nabbed on a possession charge and sentenced to a year in jail. Then, at the end of STP's 2002 tour, he got into a fight with Dean DeLeo, and that was it. The band broke up. Wyland's next project was Velvet Revolver, and he was a pain in the ass to them, too. In July 2004, he was charged with DUI and sentenced to three months probation in a six-month rehab program. In 2006, STP was offered a whole bunch of money to reunite, which they did, with Wyland dividing his time between them and Velvet Revolver. Given the personality involved here, that was probably not the best arrangement, but that's the way it went ahead. There was a coke binge in 2007, followed by another DUI charge that December. He was eventually sentenced to an 18-month alcohol rehab program, four years probation, and eight days in jail. He ended up serving about 10 hours before they turned him loose. But he did go to rehab for about three weeks in January 2008. Velvet Revolver got fed up with him and fired Wyland on April 1st, 2008, after a bunch of crazy antics on a swing through the UK. Wyland shot back saying that he was ousted by a bunch of egomaniacs. But no matter, he still had his first love, STP. And they hung together until 2012. Barely. Despite more drug issues and Wyland's tendency to be late, really late, for almost every occasion. But eventually things collapsed entirely. And on February 27th, 2013, he was sacked with this one-line statement. Stone Temple Pilots have announced that they have officially terminated Scott Wyland. Wyland replied, you can't fire me. It's my band. Lawyers were called in on both sides and, uh, well, it doesn't really matter. Wyland's gone solo and Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park started filling in. But, hey, it was amazing that STP lasted as long as they did. Stone Temple Pilots featuring Scott Wyland, a guy who's been fired from a couple of different bands. Getting the sack happens to everyone, even rock stars. Just remember that, if it ever happens to you. There are several other dismissal stories that we never got to. Bass player Kim Shatuck was fired from the Pixies for stage diving. Apparently that behavior is no-go for the band. It's rumored that Jordy Jordison was let go from Slipknot for substance abuse. Let's just think about that for a second. And speaking of which, Mike Starr was let go from Alice in Chains for being a druggie, yet they kept singer Lane Staley until he drugged himself to death. Hey, sometimes you got to deal with these double standards. If you need to reach me about anything, shoot me an email, alan at alancross.ca. I read everything and answer every email personally. You can also find me online at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update my site every single day with music news, commentary, and music recommendations, so you should really check it out. Again, that's ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Plus, I do Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google+, so maybe we'll run into each other that way. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.